Hey everyone, we are going to look at the book of Colossians again today, and we have a fantastic portion of scripture ahead of us. And I guess I say that every week, but man, this book has been so filled with truth about the person and the work of Jesus, and I've loved every bit of it, and I hope you have too. So today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So coming from last week, I want to remind you that Paul has been warning the Colossian church of the false doctrine that was beginning to creep in, which really was coming through the empty philosophies of man. And through this letter, what we're, what we're being, what's happening is Paul is reacquainting us with who Jesus is, that we would be shown the real Jesus. And from day one in Christianity, there has been a threat against the church to get it wrong about Jesus, to not see him for who he fully is, that he is both God and man, that he has died, but he was also risen, that he is both graceful and truthful. And there are many people who want to take Jesus, but only take one aspect of who he is. And yet the Bible teaches us that if we're going to receive Jesus, we need to receive all of who he is. And so for context, I want us to see how in verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul ends that part with a warning about receiving things that are, keywords here, not according to Christ. There is the key, that the teachings that threatened the Colossian church were teachings that were not according to Christ. So anything that is not according to him is then against him. And so a false teaching that related to this in the early church in which Paul was writing to was a doctrine of docetism, which claimed that Jesus had no physical or had no actual human body, but only seemed to have one, that he was somewhat of an apparition or a phantom illusion. And the reason why people wanted to see Jesus this way is to bring Jesus into their Gnosticism. Because remember, Gnosticism said that physical matter is evil. So they they tried to have Jesus, but get rid of the fact that he had an actual human body. There was another false teaching that was called Serinthianism, which said that there was Jesus the man that was separate and distinct from the spirit of Christ. So in Jesus Christ, you had two people. You had Jesus and you had Christ. And the fact is, is that Jesus Christ was one person. He is God and he is man, but he is one person. And so there's these two false teachings that were coming into the early church about Jesus. And really it was just a way for people, again, to try to have Jesus and something else. And this time it was Gnosticism. And so the whole aim of Paul's letter to the Colossians is to show us, no, we just need Jesus, the real Jesus. And perhaps you, um, you have something that you are wanting to believe, that you want Jesus and something else. What is that other thing that maybe you're wanting to have that is not according to Christ, that Jesus might want you to surrender to him today so that really you would have just Jesus, because that's, that's all you need is just him. Now, well, today we're going to look again at Jesus Christ and what we should believe about him. Now, as we continue to study this book of Colossians, Paul is going to address another thing that is not according to Christ, which is 
the issue of legalism. Now, legalism is an attempt to earn our salvation by our outward actions. Now, legalism obviously goes much deeper and broader than that definition, but what I call legalism in the church is the silent killer. And the reason why I call legalism the silent killer is because it can go so easily undetected in the church. It it can go masked as thought, well, I want to live a holy life and and I want to please God. And we often allow legalism to fly under the radar as, as being according to Christ because we see these outward signs as being, oh, well, that person's holy and that person's good. But but really it creeps in and takes away from the grace of God and the joy of God. And so we simply want to connect ourselves to Jesus. And the way we connect ourselves to Jesus is by faith in grace. Nothing of our salvation, uh, whether uh, when we were saved or as we even continue to walk with Jesus, nothing of it is earned. We are saved by grace and we continue to live out our faith in grace. Now let's look at verse 11 through 12 where it says this. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you also were were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now Paul starts this wonderful part by saying, in him. Now those are key words in the New Testament because as Christians, we are only truly who we are and what we are in him. So standing alone by ourselves, we are not the things that Jesus makes us. Standing alone, you're not redeemed, but in him, you are. Standing alone, you are not a chosen child of God, but in him you are. Standing alone, you are not righteous and holy, but in him, in Jesus, you are. So in him, those words remind us that we cannot stand alone by ourselves before the throne of God. We need to be found in him, in Jesus. So in him, it says, we are circumcised. Now, this is an interesting mark of identity because I get being redeemed. I get being chosen, righteous. But why why are we talking about cutting off the foreskin of the male genital? Why are we talking about circumcision? Well, you have to remember that for the Jew who Paul was primarily writing to, circumcision was a mark of identity. No other people group had this practice of circumcision other than the Jews. God told Abraham to circumcise all of his male children in order that they would have this mark, this identity mark that would now make them a people that were set apart for God. And what Paul is doing here is he's taking this picture of physical circumcision, which, let's be honest, his Jewish audience was well aware of. And he was applying it to their lives spiritually. That in Jesus, they received not a physical circumcision, 
but a spiritual circumcision. Again, where it says, one made without hands. That God put off the body of the sins of the flesh in a spiritual sense. So in the same way that the foreskin of flesh would be put off of the physical body of a male, this new spiritual circumcision was now going to be the new identity marker for God's people, that it would be the circumcision of Christ. Now, this new identity mark of circumcision, not made without hands, would be shown, again, not physically by circumcision, but a new physical thing, which would be baptism. Now, I don't want you to be confused at this point because I've just been throwing out a lot of biblical words and and ideas. So let me bring us up to the point of where we are. So the identity of the Jews in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament was primarily marked by physical circumcision, the cutting away of the male foreskin. That's how you identified a Jewish person. Now, the identity of Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, in the New Covenant, that's the New Testament, once Christ has come, was primarily or is primarily marked by spiritual circumcision, which is demonstrated through baptism. So we've talked about circumcision. Now we're talking about baptism. Now, I want to briefly talk about baptism just to uh, make sure that we understand what we're talking about when we're talking about baptism. Baptism is simply this, a submersion into a body of water to physically represent a spiritual reality. So let me explain this. A person who has said yes to Jesus, who has asked Jesus to be their Lord, to be their Savior, they've believed upon his death and resurrection, they've received his grace and the forgiveness of their sins, and that person has been saved, and therefore they can then be baptized. Now, baptism, what you do is you find some water, okay? Maybe a swimming pool or a lake or an ocean. Hopefully it's warm. And you go into that water and the person is baptized. They are literally submerged into the water. And the reason for this is that while they are being lowered down into the water, being submerged and raised up out of that water, they are physically showing a spiritual reality. Kind of an interesting thing. What do I mean about all this? So going down into the water represents how we have been buried with Jesus. So just as Jesus died and was buried, put in a tomb, you in your old man or your own woman, you are buried with Christ that you have died with him, that your old man is buried with him. And when you come up out of the water, just as Jesus was raised from the grave into that resurrection life, you are also raised with Jesus into the newness of life. So it is baptism that outwardly identifies a believer in Jesus. No longer circumcision, only The circumcision of the heart, which is uh, to make our heart not of stone, but of flesh. We now have this identity 
not as a physical mark, but a spiritual mark that we have been, uh, that we have died and that we've been raised with Jesus. And that, guys, that is best shown by baptism. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, I was baptized about a year and a half after I was saved. Uh, I was saved at 17 and uh, about 18, 19 years old, I was baptized. And if you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, um, I would strongly encourage you to do that. Maybe it's just because you've never gotten around to it. Maybe it's because you've never realized the importance of it. But baptism, listen, is not a requirement for salvation, but it is a command of Jesus. And it's something that's to be beautifully experienced by God, uh, by you in, in God. So as we look now at the rest of our text today, we're going to now look at the benefits of having this new identity in Jesus, this new life that is found in him. So let's look at verse 13 where it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Again, this talk about being dead, but then being made alive is repeated by Paul because it's foundational to our belief as Christians. There's this emphasis on our old nature being put away in this new life coming in Jesus. And the key part here is that our trespasses have made us dead, but it is the forgiveness of those trespasses that makes us alive. Now, I'm sure you understand what that word trespass means. Perhaps you've been somewhere where you've been walking and you see a sign and it says, no trespassing. What is the first thing that you want to do when you see that sign? You want to know what's on the other side of that. You want to know, well, what are they, what are they trying to keep me from seeing? And oftentimes, I know that in my life, I have trespassed one of those signs. I have gone beyond that place that I was told not to go. And the same is with God's law, that he has set boundaries for us to live in wholeness and with harmony with him. But we have trespassed God's boundaries. We have transgressed God's law. And because of that, it brings forth death into our lives. But in Jesus, we have, again, the forgiveness of all our trespasses as we turn away from them and we turn toward Jesus. We see that in verse 14, that when we're turned away from our trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is another beautiful picture of how our trespasses have been removed from us. See, the picture here is that God has a record of our lives. And in that record, uh, we have all the good things that we have done before God and all the bad things that we have done before God. All the things that you are proud of and all of the things that you regret. And when you come to Jesus, he forgives you of all of that record of debt. The things that were contrary to your true identity in Jesus, he has removed. He's taken it out of the way. He's both wiped it out and nailed it to the cross. So the idea of wiping out the handwriting of requirements comes from this idea that in that day, 
um, when you would write upon a document with ink, if there was a mistake that was made, you would blot it out. You would wipe the ink off the page and it would be erased. And so it's as if there is this handwriting of requirements, this law that was against us, and God has wiped it out of the way. In fact, he's taken that and he's also nailed it to the cross. And Christ at the cross atoned for those sins. And and it's amazing. That is this handwriting of requirements, both the, the demands that the law brought against us and our failure to uphold God's law. He's wiped it out of the way and he's nailed it to the cross. So that in verse 15, having also disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now this verse tells us that God understands that we have adversaries, that there are spiritual enemies at work against us. And if you're a Christian, you're aware, you're well aware of that fact, <laughs> that there's enemies against you that want to trip you up from your walk in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, I tell you, there is an enemy of your souls. And he wants nothing more than to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he wants to keep you from seeing Jesus. Because he knows that if you see Jesus for who he truly is and what he can make you, um, he's lost. However, when Jesus died on the cross, the enemy already lost. The victory has already been won. The devil is already defeated. It says that he has disarmed our spiritual enemies. He took their weapons, which was really that record of sin that they would always hold up against us, that handwriting of requirements that they knew we could never fulfill. That was nailed to the cross. And he made a public spectacle of them. Now he's talking about the devil and all of the demons that that wage war against us spiritually. Now this goes back to the picture of having made a public spectacle of them when a conquering army, where that victorious army would take the defeated army and they would parade them through the city and make them a public shame. They would shame them. And that is what Jesus has done with the devil. The serpent bruised Jesus' heel on the cross. Yes, we know that. But Jesus crushed the serpent's head. And in the same way, the victorious general of, the, of that victorious army would, as a final blow of shame, put his foot upon the neck of his enemy and, and claim that victory. And that is what Jesus has done with the devil. He has disarmed him. He has claimed the victory over him. And Jesus is the winning team. So which side are you on? Do you know Jesus? Because he has already won. Christians, we don't fight for victory. We're fighting from victory. The battle has been decided. It's won. And our enemy has been disarmed. So that today you can walk in this new life. You can, by the Spirit of God, walk in this life. Now, If today you don't know Jesus, you haven't seen him for who he truly is, today you can put faith in him. After hearing these truths of what he has done for you, all you simply need to do is say, I want that. I need that in my life. 
And you can, you, you, you need to understand, you cannot stand alone, but in him, you can stand. And so come to Jesus and say, I'm going to stop attempting to try to live my life on my own. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. Be my God. Be my God and Savior and, and be my friend. And Jesus will enter into your life and do all of these promises for you. Amen. God bless you.